Thanks for listening. Join us now for Perry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. Dr. J in the house, Jeremy Grinnell, earned his Ph.D. at Calvin Seminary, taught at Cornerstone. He's a, he's a renowned Bible teacher. He's a novelist. He performs cartwheels, I understand. And he has a motorcycle. <laughs> well, well, I preach. That's right. <laughs> and the delight so of all. Uh, Jeremy comes in about once every three or four weeks to answer Bible questions, and it's just been an awesome morning. And we've got another yeah, here's one from our buddy Chris. He says, reflecting on Luke eighteen thirteen, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please help me understand the difference between the tax collector's response, righteous, and shame. Not good. Yeah, interesting. There's a number of moving uh, parts here to just set the context. This is a parable that Jesus told, so called the, the parable of the uh, tax collector and the uh, um, and the Pharisee, or sometimes in the Old King James, the Pharisee and the publican, mm. um, where the two men come into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee stands up front and lifts his hands and compares himself to everyone else and de- kind of declares his own righteousness right. on the basis of all that he's done, and the tax collector who is hated by all has no social power has in a sense no right to be there uh you know socially speaking stands kind of off behind the curtain and uh and and does what chris uh has articulated there um beats his breast and 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 declares his inadequacy so that's kind of the context and we ha- we would be remiss if we didn't at first say that jesus goal is to remind us of of the difference between these two hearts and how they respond to the gospel you know the one the pharisee who doesn't who thinks he's just fine right and the publican who knows he has nothing to offer and he's the one who goes down forgiven so he's actually in a sense the hero of the story so remembering that first but i you know there's an interesting assumption in chris's question that i myself have had wrestled with the fact i wrote a a whole chapter just on this in the bellowing of Cain because I've had to wrestle with this myself. I think because of the age in which we live, the kind of the therapeutic age and the voices of the culture, we have a, we have the assumption that feelings of shame or shame guilt, however you want to say mm-hmm. it, are universally bad, deplorable, and we should be liberated from them instantly and always and all under all circumstances. And honestly, based on my own journey, I'm not sure that's entirely true mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, the one obvious example, you know, if you have a murderer sitting in prison who doesn't feel bad for the fact right. that they killed someone, doesn't experience any shame, guilt or regret, remorse, we would call that pathological. I mean, that's mm-hmm. we if you've done wrong things and clearly this tax collector being a tax collector working for the Romans has extorted his own people, has done all these awful things. If you don't feel regret Call it shame, call it not. If you don't feel negative feelings over that, then in a sense, there's something wrong. Yeah. Now, Christ, of course, has come to liberate, free, restore, redeem. But sometimes the doorway through which we receive that forgiveness, through which we can embrace it, is our own failure. Yeah, and the is. acknowledgement of our own failure. Mm-hmm. So, uh, George MacDonald in C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Great Divorce, has this you know wonderful line that he reports. He says, "Shame is, um, shame is very nourishing if you will drink it to the bottom. You do anything mm-hmm. else with it, and it will scald." That shame itself, though a work of the of the enemy, of the work of the devil, is something that God condescends to use to bring us into spaces where we can experience a redemption, a forgiveness, and a restoration that we would not even realize we needed Mm -hmm. if we did not have to walk through the door of shame. So shame can, it's awful to feel, 
but shame can be a work of grace. Yes. It can be a gift if we do the right things with it. And I've experienced this in my life where, where, you know, the root of shame got planted in my heart when I was like eight years old and, you know, it kind of grew and blossomed from there and became toxic in some ways. But if I had not had shame throughout my life, I don't think I would see my need for Jesus. That's right. And my, my shame is, is very poisonous. Shame says, what you've done is who you are, and it's who you always be, and there's no hope. That's the poison of shame. But like you said, God uses shame to drive us to Christ. That's mm-hmm. right. That's and right. and shame, shame isn't, you know, you did wrong. Shame is you are wrong. Yeah, there's and identity. So, and there so there's a, a deeper yeah. redemption that needs to take place when we have shame. But it's that very shame that causes us to experience the deeper redemption. Right. That's right. It's, right. It's, if, people who don't know they're lost can't be found. And shame is somehow sometimes the mechanism God uses to help us realize we're lost yes. and I'm, we need liberation. What I'm hearing you say, Jeremy, is that shame is a, a journey. Absolutely. And if you keep walking, it'll lead you. It could lead, it will you, lead you somewhere really it can, beautiful and good. Or, or tragically, if you, if you embrace it as identity and then just wallow in it, it, it will take you somewhere. God can take that and use it as a, as a, as a thing that brings us into glory. Uh, the enemy would seek to use it as a thing to bring us into defeat. So, you know, who are you following? What voices are you listening to? Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid of shame. Be afraid of what the enemy wants to do with it and instead give it to God. Mm-hmm. And God can take even such awful things as shame and th- turn them to our good. God's very good at that. Yeah. yeah. And I've, you know, my journey with shame has been pretty much 99.9% of my journey with Jesus because I became a believer when I was 10. Mm-hmm. And so the journey with shame and with discovering my identity and shame driving me to Jesus has been happening right up to the present. And now look at what, look at the story that you can now tell to yes. others because of that journey. Mm. You know, Christ himself still bears the wounds of the cross. Yeah. They don't get removed. Yep. They're our story. We own these things. They're, they're part, they are identity in one sense, but they become redeemed identity yeah. because God has taken it and now used it for my glory. Yes, the losses are real. You know, sin is, has losses. There's no question. Adam and Eve don't get the garden back. The losses are real. But God uses the sin in the garden to bring a redeemer named Jesus. And Paul talks about this several times, that through that doorway of the fall, we get a redeemer. Now, we would all wish the fall hadn't taken place. We have to wish that because it was a great evil. And look at all the evil that's happened in the world because of it. But God turns evil to good. Mm -hmm. So just as God did with Adam and Eve's sin, with their shame and guilt, from that brought a redeemer into the world by which all things can be restored, so too God can do with with us, even with our shame. Ron asks, why did Jesus tend to refer to himself as the Son of Man? Oh, that is a good question. Um, And it's really interesting. This is a really interesting question to me because it's something I stumbled over for a long time until I kind of did the homework to figure it out. Um, This language of Son of Man and Son of God, uh, we tend to think, just because the way it's what sounds in English, that, you know, Son of God means... Jesus is divine, mm-hmm. right. you know, deity. Yep. And son of man means he's born of Mary, you know, has a human nature. In the Jewish mindset, that it's actually, ironically, somewhat reversed. Mm. Son of God was actually 
you know, meant children of in in their mindset would have been like we're the, we're the Israel, we're the chosen people, we're the sons of God. That's okay. how it's used all through. The, <laughs> so to be a son of God in that context, its immediate meaning would have simply meant he was a child of Abraham, part of the covenant people, one of the sons of God. Son of man is actually a very ancient term, even in Jesus' day. Uh, Daniel uses it in Daniel 7, Daniel 9, other places. The son of man is the one coming on high. It's actually, it mm. actually is a reference to the one who sits next to Yahweh as part of the, and it's a much larger system, much larger thought. Uh, it, it, it means kind of Yahweh coming on high. And uh, so is the one who comes from Yahweh on high, and so it was actually a title of divinity, wow. which is why when Jesus, uh, standing before the high priest, says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the throne, and quotes Daniel, the high priest rents his robes and says, do we have need of to hear any more? This man's a blasphemer and a heretic, because everyone in the room recognized that Jesus was arrogating to himself a divine title. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when someone says Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, there it is right there. Th- it, that's, that's just pure ignorance of how the Hebrew Bible was understood by the people of the day. Son of Man is actually the most one of the most exalted titles, ancient of days kind of title mm-hmm. that Jesus could have taken to himself to demonstrate that he was the promised one coming uh, from on high, not just the Messiah, the one promised, you know, to come uh, as, a, as a man, but very much having come from heaven. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, when he says that, he's actually taking to himself a title that is worthy of worship. I've got that passage right here, D- Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Mm-hmm. Daniel has this vision. I saw in my vision at night and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And I've heard it uh, spoken of as this was when Jesus, after Jesus resurrected from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And this was him approaching the, the ancient of days and be being given glory and authority and sovereign power over all the nations after the resurrection and the ascension. He's he's coming toward the throne of God. That certainly would be a fitting that certainly would be a fitting way to, to, to place that. Of course, no Jewish the Jewish mind would not have done that, but we with the benefit of yeah. you know latter revelation can yeah. see more going on there. In fact, even in the ancient Jewish mindset, uh, the intertestamental Jews actually had a very working concept of what they called the dual Yahwehs. They recognized a kind a weird kind of plurality in God's own self. Mm. Because of these kinds of passages. Now, latter Jews, Second Temple Judaism later actually rejected all of that because they saw what the church was doing with it, with the yeah. doctrine of the Trinity as it began to be sort of explained and developed. And they said, we want none of that. We're monotheists. But it's funny because bef- so before Jesus, the Jews themselves actually reading their own Old Testament canon were already understanding some kind of working plurality of identity within the one God of Israel. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting mm, history. Is. You can read, if you'd like to know more on this, I recommend anything written by Michael S. Heiser, who recently passed away, but um, he, he spent a career working on these things. Unseen Realm, uh, Supernatural, Angels, Demons, those are all titles of his books. Michael S. Heiser, you can find him on Amazon. Uh, excellent reading. It'll change your view of the Old Testament forever. Stephanie says, I've been reading in Ezekiel, and kind of a two-part question. God also calls Ezekiel son of man, 
repeatedly. So we talked about how Jesus referred to himself as son of man, and that pointed to Daniel 7. Yes. Which the son of man in that case is a is a is a man who is divine. The one who comes from on high. Yes. But also son of man is used a lot in the Hebrew scriptures just to refer to a to a person who speaks for God. A messenger yeah. of God. Yep. And so it's all about the context. Yep. When Jesus used son of man, he was definitely referring to Daniel. Well, he's quoting him. Yeah, that you shall see the Son of Man coming on, which is that's right out of Daniel. Yep. And he created lots of enemies by saying, "I'm <laughs> yes. the Son of Man," because I'm pointing to being that guy in in Daniel seven. So, two different usages of that word. But the second part of the question here for Stephanie is, God asks Ezekiel to do some strange things. Lie on your leg side. Lie on your side. Mm-hmm. And place the the sins the sins of Israel on yourself. Yep. Thank you, Shauna. Yep. Place the sins of Israel on yourself. Lie on your side and place the sins of Israel on yourself. Is this symbolism, or did he really do it? In three verse one, eat this scroll. In yep. three fourteen, right. shave the head. And the spirit things. lifted yep. me up and took me away. Five one, shaving the head and beard and weighing the hair into three equal parts. It's probably kind of a mix here. Yeah, yeah I, that's exactly right. That's what I was going to say. You don't when you read it. It says, you know, Yahweh said, do these things, and then just continues on. You never actually then break back into sort of storytelling, and Ezekiel did this. Right. But the implication would have to be that he did, um, mm-hmm. that he that he did do these strange things. Um, the prophets were known for doing these wacky and strange things. It's all this symbolic thing. So even as he's doing it, it has, these, it has this great symbolic value to the people who are watching in the sense, you know, almost the hope of like, well, why are you doing this? And then Ezekiel will speak the word of the Lord sort of to them. Right, so right. that that behavior, those weird behavior on the part of the prophets opens up the question. Right, it draws them in. It draws right? them in, yeah. And I don't mean in sort of some sort of shallow shtick, uh, like a performative kind of thing, but it does, it does actually have that. That's we... The imagery of him eating this and lying here and doing these strange things and cooking his food over his own excrement. You know, there's all these weird things the prophets do that are all meant God is using as as, as symbolism to sh- to say something. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we still do this now. Think, mm-hmm. think of even the sacraments in the Christian church, the ordinances. They are there to teach, to let us see. We we actually, in a sense, watch Christ's body broken right. and, and the blood pour. I mean, we we see it reenacted, and you know, and Roman Catholics think of that in one sense, and Protestants think of it in a different sense. But it's meant to teach. Right. We're visual creatures, and Judaism, even more so than than much of Christianity, was built upon the whole human self entering in. I mean, the festivals, the build a booth in your backyard. I mean, their, their whole humanity is involved in enacting religious truth. And we could actually learn something from that. I it think. shows the creativeness of God. You know, I think of how songs communicate in a very mm-hmm. creative way, God's right. symbols. So what am I, I'm standing on one leg right now. <laughs> like you're doing yoga. With my arms yes. spread what out. What is happening? He like pushed his pose. chair back and he's getting really into it. What am I saying? Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's just it. You, you do that on the street corner and it invites people to, you know, you think about yeah. this, you see street this on like on, on, on TikTok and Instagram, things like that. You got the guy out there with like, well, all the youth are wretched, change my mind kind of signs, you know, and it's meant to draw yeah. people in and engage yeah. the conversation. Well, the prophets are not, beyond doing that yeah yeah, so there is no reason to think that ezekiel did not do all of these things just as it says but weird isn't for the sake of weird 
No, it's weird <laughs> for the sake of what God is trying to teach the right. people because God teaches God teaches in word and in deed. Mm-hmm. And you see Ezekiel doing both. Here's these weird deeds that Ezekiel does that also are accompanied by word yep. of explanation. Yeah. Um I think it's beautiful. Actually. It it really is. There's yeah. a there's a wholeness about our humanity that I think you you know many pa- pastors, many preachers these days have discovered the the, the beauty of the object lesson. You know, they take right. the, the the weird, sh- you know, Chotsky up on them on stage and wave it around as whatever it happens to be sure. a license plate or whatever as yep. their illustration because they we know any public communicator knows instinctively that just telling a story versus Showing. visualizing the yeah. story uh, people in the theater have known this for years. It's yeah. the difference between 2D and 3D. Very much so. Yeah. There's a layer of depth that comes yeah. in understanding. I think yeah. you should start doing some cartwheels when you when you teach and preach the Bible. Uh, how do you know I don't? <laughs> <laughs> Our buddy Jim has a question for you this morning, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. He says... John 1, 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the ESV version. Mm-hmm. How does the word believe differ from receive? And then secondly, follow-up question on that. Is this saying that anyone who does not receive Jesus is not a child of God? Ah, okay. Good questions. Um, the let's, Okay, believe and receive. They would not, they would not be exactly synonyms. Uh, meaning you could not replace them in every sentence with right. each other and have it work. But what's probably going on here in verse 12 of John 1 it is probably of not great significance, is, is probably of not appreciable uh, difference between the two things. Because what it's probably going on in this, I mean, John is writing this, John is, is a Jewish, and Jewish poetry actually uses this thing called parallelism where it simply restates in very similar language the line before it you can go to the psalms and you'll see this like those all the psalms are just shot full of this you can't swing a dead cat through the psalms without hitting <laughs> parallelism um where they'll talk about you know the lord is great the lord is good you know and they and, and while there's a difference between the two lines they're meant to sort of restate the same truth so john is probably uh, using that literary device here, almost this up, uh, it's almost a kind of poetry for those who receive him, for those who believe in his name. Gotcha. And John probably means those to mean the kind of the same thing. These, mm-hmm. This is the same person doing both of these things. So John probably does not mean a great deal of difference between them, even though we could find, you know, fern seeds of difference between the two words. That, I, th- I think that's probably what's going on. Um, on the second question, if you were using the rules of logic, uh, here, John is not actually talking about at all people who don't. He's talking about people who do. So the rules of logic would say don't draw strong conclusions about the audience he's not talking to. Mm-hmm. However, we have the rest of the scriptures, which mm-hmm. seem very clear about the fact that those who receive and embrace Christ's life, death, and resurrection on their behalf are a, a child of God in a very real way that that someone who does not is not. That makes me think of the term adopted. And that adoption is, yeah, see that you have, there's much mischief done by missing this distinction in the language of God, God as father. Uh, And I think we've had questions about this like this in the past. There is a sense God is the creator of all. And so in that sense, God is the father of all. Like we're all creation creatures of God and God loves the work of the divine hand. So in that sense, we're all creatures of God. But what John is talking about is not that sort of God, the creator 
He's talking about God the Redeemer, the, that, the covenant, the, the redemptive work of God. And that clearly doesn't cover everyone. It covers only those who believe, only those who receive. Mm-hmm. So the, there does seem to be, I, I mean, I think I do agree with him that the passage does imply, certainly imply, that those who do not embrace Christ's work, believe and receive, are, would not be considered sons or daughters in that redemptive sense. Mm. And then right before, you know, this passage, John 1, 12 and, and 13, I think, it says that he came to his own. He yep. came to his own Jewish people. Yes. And his own did not receive him. That's right. And and, and again, you feel it there, that difference, that his own, in that sense, is a reflection, is, is a reference to sort of the national Jewish identity, the, the uh, chosen people. They did not receive him. It's not a sense in his own meaning, his adopted brothers and sisters in in redemption. It's a different use. And, and all through Jesus' ministry, he's talking about, you know, I'm from the Father. Mm-hmm. I've come from the Father. And some of you have received me as coming from the Father. And others are saying, you're of the devil. You know, you're a devil. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, it, it's a huge thing to say, Jesus, I receive you as coming from the Father, Mm -hmm. as the one who brings us to the Father. And it's a dangerous thing to say, no, Jesus was just a good teacher, which I read in the Holland Sentinel. Yeah, which is a very sub-Christian view of Jesus, Mm -hmm. a good teacher. I mean, you know, Islam. That would be an Islamic view of Jesus. He was was a good prophet. He was one of the great prophets. Um, Even... Even there are some forms of modern Judaism that will look at Jesus, though a heretic, seeing him as a heretic in some sense, will say, yeah, he said he was a, he had good moral teachings, you know, love one another and, you know, don't be, don't be bad. Mm -hmm. Um, That very much undersells who Jesus was. They didn't put him on the cross because of his moral message. At that level, Jesus said Mm -hmm. very little more than Plato or Aristotle or any of the great moral teachers, you know, treat others as significant as yourself. Do be just in your relationships. That's not why they hung him on the cross. Mm -hmm. They hung him on the cross because he claimed to be the son of man. He claimed to be the fulfillment of the covenant. He claimed to be the God of Israel come in human flesh. Mm -hmm. I mean, his claims were far more scandalous. Mm -hmm. And so the believe and receive, I mean, it's asking a lot of a Jewish person, just as it is for us. It's, it's asking, well, in one sense, everything. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, lay everything down for the sake of this one. Sit in the chair. It will hold you up. But there's no good talking about the strength of the chair if you're not willing to sit. Right. Leave and receive is as much an action as anything else. So if you are unwilling to sit in the chair, unwilling to to rest upon the work of this one, well, there's no reason to anticipate or expect that that work will be credited to you. Right. It just it doesn't make, it's not God being cruel. It's just that's the that's the metaphysical math of it. If you don't, if you don't believe that we landed on the moon in the Apollo program, well, then you don't get the benefits of believing that we landed on the moon. Or you could say it's like God is God is the air. God is oxygen. And if you have a relationship with God, you, you can breathe. You breathe. But if you, if you push him away, it's like you're in space. Right. And there's, there's no oxygen in space. And there's no point in blaming God for that. If you, if you, right. if we will not eat the food we're given, you have no choice but starve. Which brings us to a whole other question. But like you know, the <laughs> you can't blame God for what you choose in your free will. <laughs> That's yes. Humans have this very kink in them that we want. We demand this. We demand moral freedom, and then we blame God for not honoring it. 
you know, right. I, yeah. if I, I yeah. almost feel bad for God. It's going to catch 22 here, right? You want We want to be free of God and yet want to get all the benefits of being God's creature. It. And yeah. it's, well, that's the hypocrisy of the sinner. Mm-hmm. We don't know what we're asking for. Yeah. Well, you're talking to me too. Well, it's all of us. It's me. It's me every morning. <laughs> all right. The good news is the gospel. The good news is that you have the opportunity to choose. Mm-hmm. That you can choose not to receive Jesus as the Redeemer, or you can choose to accept that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself, but God in his goodness and his righteousness made a way for you to be saved, and that way is Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross for you so that you could be reconciled to God the Father in right relationship with him, not just for all eternity, not just in heaven, but today, like right here, right now, reconciled, with God the Father. You can choose that today. Thanks for listening to Perry and Shauna Replay. To learn more, text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930.